Thank you very much, Sean. More from Sean in an hour's time. It's Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock on On the Record on News Talk 106 to 108 today. 53106 is the number for your texts. That will cost you 30 cent. We are also on Twitter at News Talk FM. Uh, just want to let you know about a press release that's come in in the last couple of minutes from the Independent Alliance. Uh, they have warned that they will vehemently oppose any suggestions of an increase in property tax in 2020. Uh, as partners in government, we welcome the recent statement from the Taoiseach indicating that Fine Gael supports our position on this. So just to let you know, uh, the Independent Alliance are promising to oppose a policy that the government says it won't bring forward. Um, speaking of policies that the government uh, won't bring forward, um, let's have another quick look at the front pages of the British papers today. Uh, the Mail on Sunday, Burkow's secret kill Brexit plot with Tory saboteur. Uh, Sunday Telegraph, Tories on the brink of imploding over Brexit. The Sunday Times, a very British coup, Commons plot to seize control from May. The Observer, Labour set to trigger vote to topple May government, although if you were listening to Jeremy Corbyn on Andrew Marr this morning as we played you in the last hour, perhaps not. Sunday Express, May back my deal or face catastrophe. Uh, we're joined on the line by George Parker, who's the political editor of the Financial Times in London, also the former uh, bureau chief in Brussels. Um, George, a lot of us might be looking through the British papers today, hoping that there might be some signs of intelligence of what the plan B might be if Theresa May's plan A is, as expected, uh, voted down in the next couple of days. Uh, it is striking that there is no sign of any plan B up her sleeve. No, in fact, uh, the British papers are full of talks of plots and coups and parliamentary shenanigans and the Speaker talking to Tory MPs and the behind the door, behind the scenes and cloakroom overheard conversations in the cloakroom. But as you say, very little evidence of um, what's going to happen next uh, if, as we expect, Theresa May loses by a very large margin on Tuesday. Um, I think I can probably have a guess what's going to happen next, which is I think Theresa May is hoping that sometime over the next 24 hours she'll get a letter of support from Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission President, and Donald Tusk, the European Council President, on the Irish backstop proposal, which she'll see as a sort of show of ankle by Brussels that they're prepared to move a bit further. Mm. She'll then present this to MPs, there'll be a vote she'll lose, and then she'll hope to go back to Brussels and get a slightly better, more legally binding guarantee from the EU side. Um, but if that fails and she loses a second Commons vote, then we're, in, we're into what she calls uncharted territory. Well, there is a piece that's in the Sunday Times today which has uh, analysed all the public statements by Conservative MPs. It's been compiled by the People's Vote campaign. They say that of the 105 Tories that say they are opposed to May's deal, only 13 of them have actually hung their opposition solely and specifically on the backstop. But as many mm. as 81 of them say that they can't vote for any plan that leaves the UK as a rule taker in relation to Brussels or citing the, the £39 billion divorce bill. So it's strikes me that no matter what clarifications she's likely to get from Donald Tusk or Jean-Claude Juncker, that it's not really going to make much of a dent in the final outcome. Yeah, I think um, that's probably underestimating the number of people who would come across if they got something meaningful. I think the key thing to watch out for is what the DUP do. So Theresa May has spent an awful lot of time with the DUP leadership in the last couple of weeks. And she's obviously hoping that the EU eventually will come up with some sort of legal interpretation of what they mean by a temporary backstop, which will be enough to bring the DUP on board. And if the DUP comes on board, they're hopeful that a big tranche of Eurosceptic Tory MPs will follow. And so, say, well, so basically okay the, the DUP, DUP are her weather vane then for that? Yeah, the, 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 the Eurosceptic MPs, a lot of them will come across. Now, I mean, that may turn out to be wishful thinking, as you, you were just suggesting there. 
And in any event, I don't think anyone in Downing Street thinks that they can get down, get the rebellion of Tory MPs down to much below 30 or 40, which they regard as the irreducible core of, of Euroscepticism in, Euro in the Tory party, at which point they would require a similar number of Labour MPs to cross the, cross the floor of the House and vote with the government and it to would get be, this deal through. It would be easy to, to look at the likes of the Sunday Times, the very British coup and the Commons plot to seize control of May and just laugh it off as people saying that they wanted to take back control but they didn't want to take back all the responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. But c- can you give us some sense of exactly uh, what people might have in mind? Because the Sunday Times piece says that, uh, that there are two different groups of MPs who uh, effectively want to have uh, their proposals trump the government's proposals when it comes to whatever plan b might be but again there is no real uh, hardened sign of what exactly might emerge as a consensus among those backbenchers to, to force the government's hand well you're right i mean there's a lot of procedural stuff in the sunday papers but very little substance about what exactly it is that parliament would do if it took back control of this process from theresa may so it's all very well we know very well that um, mps don't like uh, the prospect of a no deal exit and we are about to find out um, beyond any sort of question at all that they don't like Theresa May's deal very much. But the question is, what do they do then? I mean, basically, there are three separate scenarios. One is that um, the no-deal exit scenario, which is favoured, I would guess, by between about 80 and 100 Conservative Eurosceptics, far short of the majority need in the House of Commons of 300, uh, 650 MPs. So I think a no-deal exit is the least likely outcome. Then you've got a second referendum, which has been promoted by a number of Labour MPs, Tories like Dominic Grieve and Anna Soubry. Again, I don't think that would command a majority in the House of Commons either. And then you sort of turn to the sort of compromise middle option of a Norway-style close economic partnership, probably with the Customs Union chucked in as well. Um, the problem with that is, first of all, it leaves Britain as a rule-taker on a massive scale, mm. making budget contributions to Brussels, very limited ability to control freedom of movement. And there's another big problem with that, which is that before you even get to talking about a Norway-style model, that's in far into the future, you still have to agree the withdrawal deal, and that includes the Irish backstop. So none of these plans, B, C, D, or whatever you want to call them, are particularly attractive, Why? which is why I think in the end, Theresa May's deal still has a bit more life in it than some people think. Uh, perhaps the on, on the second or third attempt to sell it, though. Uh, do you think that there is any understanding, George, that uh, among people who do argue for, uh, for a better scenario, and we do hear from them from, from time to time, people the likes of Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg, who reckon that a, a better deal is attainable and can still can be achieved, um, that those people understand that in order to get enough time to negotiate that deal, that they will have to cross one of their red lines, which is the extension of Article 50 and the delay of Brexit? Yeah, I think, to be honest... Um, the one prediction I would make, given the fact that it's almost everything's unpredictable at the moment, is that we won't be leaving the EU on the 29th of March. I can't see any circumstances where this parliamentary standoff is going to be resolved in time for us to leave by that point and get to get the whole raft of legislation that has to go through the House of Commons to make it happen for, for a start. Um, but is there a majority to, to delay it, though? Won't uh, the delay of Article 50 need some sort of Commons approval and she probably won't get that either? Well, she will need Commons approval, and the government then has to get approval from the EU, of course. Mm. But I think in the end, she will get that approval, just because there is so... There is a, the, the one thing you can tell from the House of Commons is that the MPs don't want to leave without a deal because of the economic chaos that would cause. There are a number of cabinet ministers who have indicated they would resign rather than let that happen. So I think in the end, there would be parliamentary support for an extension of Article 50 to delay Brexit to allow things to be sorted out but you know the question is how long and what's the purpose of the extension is it just to allow us to get the legislation through the house of commons 
Or is it basically go back to square one and try and work out what on earth it is we want from Brexit? Uh, there is one text in to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. Do keep your opinions coming. Uh, one person has, has posited a theory, and I have to say that I'm minded to agree with them, um, that there might not be a majority in favour of a second referendum, or there may not be a majority in favour of delaying Article 50, and there might not be a majority for no deal at all. But because there is no majority to do anything, that Parliament is so strangled by its own red lines and contradictions and factions, that in fact simply the status quo might prevail and the status quo is that at 11pm on March the 29th that the UK is leaving, like it or not. Well, that's, that is the hope of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, that um, essentially we have to change, the British Parliament would have to change the law and introduce a new law to stop us leaving on the 29th of March. And what you're really seeing is a monumental game of chicken at Westminster. Um, I was speaking to one Brexit, pro-Brexit minister who was saying basically everybody's got an interest in playing this right down to the wire. So if you're Theresa May, you hope that as you get close to the 29th of March that your opponents start to blink because they fear the economic chaos that will be unleashed by a no-deal exit. If you're Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, you just think you can keep sort of, you're in the scrum, you keep pushing the ball, <clears throat> hoping to get it over the line and we leave without a deal in the end. And you've got the Remainers who think that if we're sort of still stuck in this parliamentary deadlock on the 29th of March or just running into 29th of March, the Prime Minister will have no alternative but to call a referendum which might reverse Brexit. So everybody has an interest in playing it long, right up to the wire. And the question then is what's happening in the UK and I guess possibly even in Ireland, in the run-up to the 29th of March, if no deal is still a possibility, I suspect in the end you'll get a lot of market turbulence, and I'm pretty sure you'll start to see people starting to hoard food, fill up their car with petrol, with potentially um, chaotic consequences in the shops and at uh, petrol stations. So it's a a very high-stakes game that everybody here is playing. Uh, Knowing Westminster as you do, uh, George, the front page of the Sunday Telegraph today says Tories on the brink of imploding over Brexit. And we know that there have been fault lines down the Conservative Party for decades now over what sort of relationship they should have uh, with the European (coughs) Union. But it seems that no matter what sort of difficulties that it might take to get some sort of accord now, or if you had some sort of orderly Brexit and some sort of orderly future relationship, uh, that it seems like you really can't put the toothpaste back into the tube now and that the open civil war, which has engulfed the Conservative Party for, for so many months now, it seems like it's going to be very difficult ever to put that behind them again. Yes, I mean, you're right. And if Theresa May ends up going for a much softer form of Brexit or indeed a second referendum or a lengthy delay on Brexit, you can see why whether the schism in the Conservative Party would become so big it would be almost impossible to see it coming, the party coming back together again. The only one thing I would say about that is the Tory party is one of the great survivors of, of, of world politics, really, one of the most successful election-winning machines in world politics. Um, and they've been through difficult times before. And the question is, you know, at what point does the party split? Well, you know, you could imagine, you know, the scenario where Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson go off and form a sort of more right-wing, um, pro-Brexit, sort of anti-immigration sort of party. But would they ever find themselves back in power again? There's always a sort of uh, a survival instinct in the Tory party which kicks in, I think. Um, final question for you, George. Is there a plan B that doesn't require uh, the Irish government and indeed the other 26 on the other side of the table to weaken their position around no hard border and the backstop to ensure that? I think um, any sort of plan B will require some sort of um, written undertaking from both sides by the UK and the EU of what they mean by a temporary backstop, something which um, will have some sort of quasi-legal status could be stored in the depository of treaties at the UN to give people a bit of assurance in Westminster that this will be a temporary arrangement. I think that I think the EU is prepared to grant that, and I think that's probably the sort of starting point for whatever happens next here. Okay, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to George Parker, the Financial Times political editor, joining us live from London.